This is the 90 Miles Podcast. I'm your host, Susanna Coley. We're back after a few weeks off and have some really great episodes coming up. Today, Cuba has made international headlines during the global COVID-19 pandemic. First, for sending thousands of Cuban health professionals to nations across the globe. Next, for a comprehensive strategy on the home front that helped keep Cuba infection and death rates remarkably low. More recently, Cuba has been in the spotlight as two of its five vaccine candidates have advanced to phase three clinical trials and are on the verge of national and potentially international approval. Today, we're joined by Gail Reed. Gail has decades of experience with the Cuban healthcare system, Cuba's role in global health and how U.S.-Cuba relations impact Cuba's health system and biotech industry. She's the executive director of Medic Review, a peer-reviewed quarterly journal that publishes original research and perspectives by Cuban and other developing country health professionals. Today's conversation will help answer how Cuba put together such an effective national strategy to combat COVID-19, how the small island developed not one but two vaccines that could potentially be used to vaccinate much of the global south, and how U.S. policy is impacting Cuba's healthcare system and biotech industry. All this and more this week on 90 Miles. Now off to my colleague Colin Laverty and our guest Gil Reed. Gail, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited uh, to have you. Uh, you're somebody who spent a lot of time in Cuba and you've spent a lot of time learning about and working in the public health system. So I don't think there's anyone better to join us today to talk about COVID and the COVID vaccines in Cuba. So thank you. Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. So I thought we could start uh, with just a general overview of COVID in Cuba. What, what is the situation currently? And if you had to describe to somebody how Cuba has done with COVID over the last year plus, uh, what would that description be? Well, I think that um, if you compare Cuba to the rest of Latin America and you compare it to some of the hot spots of the world, um, which includes Latin America, you'll find that it's done very well. In other words, what we're looking at now is a total number of cases of about 128,000 and about a little over 800 deaths altogether since March 2020. And that, that works out to be about one-tenth of the deaths of the lowest uh, frequency of deaths in all of the Americas, uh, which is in Costa Rica, and uh, about 20% of the cases of, of most of, the, of the, uh, the countries in Latin America. So on the big picture, we can say that Cuba's been doing extremely well. Uh, however, they like most of the countries of the world have experienced a real uh, uptick, uh, a real peak in cases since December 2020. Um, you know, it's really an explosion of cases, uh, about 700% greater numbers of cases. They're averaging about 1,000 new cases a day now, uh, and, you know, somewhere around 10 deaths a day, which is which for Cuba, and it's 11.3 million people, and especially for its health system, is is of great concern. They have 
developed, I think, what has been a, a very important set of strategies over the past year to confront the uh, pandemic. And we have to have a, a parenthesis here and say that it's also been in the context of uh, some of the most ferocious uh, aspects of the U.S. sanctions uh, in their 60-some year history. Um, and, and these include the 240-some uh, new restrictions imposed during the Trump era, which have yet to be lifted uh, by President Biden. And this is one of the great concerns uh, for the island going forward, and frankly, I would say for Florida going forward, given the... Um, given the travel uh, that we foresee between the, the, two, um, the two areas. The embargo certainly hasn't made things easy. However, what has Cuba done to strategically combat COVID? I think that you could describe the strategy that has been in place by Cuba over the last year or so as, uh, first of all, a very important public health strategy that has relied on just about daily information uh, uh, to the public about what's happening with the um, pandemic. It has relied on what they would call active screening by family doctors and nurses and medical students uh, going out daily to homes across the island to look for people with symptoms, uh, contact tracing of those uh, confirmed cases. Uh, some 90% of new cases are found through this contact tracing. Isolation of uh, confirmed cases and contacts, and something that I don't believe is being done uh, in almost any other country in the world, and that is to hospitalize all confirmed cases. So this has been the strategy public health-wise. They have not gone to quarantine generally. They have gone to quarantine for specific blocks, specific communities, specific areas where there is uh, active transmission. They do have the borders closed essentially with, with very few uh, flights coming in and out since uh, the beginning of this year. And, and I think the other piece of it, obviously, is their biotech and pharmaceutical industry, which has really been mobilized into action. Uh, the most obvious area of this, of course, is the um, development of vaccines and vaccine candidates for COVID-19. There are now four candidates in uh, clinical trials. The other piece of it, of course, is are the uh, biotech uh, medications and um, therapies that are being used uh, through um, that are being used throughout the country but also uh, especially with patients in, in clinical management Gail it really is impressive that Cuba's come up with such a comprehensive strategy to combat covid what should we know about the Cuban healthcare system to understand why it was so prepared to respond effectively I think the the most important thing, Colin, is that it is a universal public health system. It is not for a few people. It's for all people. There's not the uh, private-public kind of um, mix that often makes public health poor people's health. There are shortages, certainly, uh, of all kinds in the system, but everyone has access to the system. And and by that, I mean the system goes to people. There are 11,000 or so family doctor and nurse offices dotting 
virtually every neighborhood and rural area in Cuba. So the doctor and nurse are only a few steps away from your front door. Uh, and, and I think this also goes to the issue of trust. Um, as we've seen in the U.S. and recent polls uh, here in the States is that doctors and nurses are really trusted almost uh, above and beyond everybody else. So this is important because you can take the public health message, the educational message, literally door to door. So I think that um, that's one aspect. The other aspect, of course, uh, and this is, you know, um, an important one throughout the world, is the high educational level of the Cuban population in general. So that you're not only uh, putting out the messages and the education uh, and the preventive um, aspect of it, but you also have a very receptive public for this. Uh, so, so it's those pieces. Plus, I think that um, they have developed a very sophisticated uh, primary, secondary, tertiary healthcare system. It's not only family doctors and nurses. They have quite uh, sophisticated research capabilities in a, over 60 specialties of medicine. So we're dealing with a system that has been in operation for 40, 50 years now, uh, and, and it and its most recent incarnation with family medicine since the 1980s. And so this is something that was in place that people uh, are used to um, going to their family doctor, going to the pediatrician, going to the internist. They're used to having physicians and nurses available to them. And there is a very strong biotech capability in the country. You have to remember that uh, Cuba's first biotech institutions were founded just five years after the first biotech company in the world was founded in the U.S., which was Genentech uh, in, in the U.S. in 1976. So these two taken together and the integration of the biotech with the public health system, I think, are uh, strengths, key pillars that have allowed uh, Cuba to confront this uh, pandemic uh, in a way that builds on and plays to their strengths. And I want to get to the biotech for sure in a moment here. You mentioned trust, a highly educated population, a very effective communication strategy. Uh, from what I've seen and the time I've spent in Cuba over the last year plus, I haven't seen any anti-masking movements or even comments um, to that extent, I don't think. And then really a receptive public for the most part. I suspect there's fatigue because of the economic situation and just like the rest of the world, a year plus um, dealing with COVID. But in general, you know, have you seen, are there any, you know, anti-vaccination movements or anti-mask movements or people in Cuba that don't believe in COVID or some of the things that we've seen elsewhere? Not at all. Uh, we're not seeing an anti-vaxxer movement. We're not seeing people who do not believe in COVID. Um, I do have to say, however, that uh, I think um, in Cuba, as well as throughout the U.S. and the rest of the world, disinformation, what's been called the infodemic, that is carried over social media, is of great concern. 
because you see, you know, all kinds of, you know, wild conjectures and conspiracy theories and so on and so forth. And since most people now in Cuba do have access to the internet, belatedly in terms of what we would see in the U.S., that means they could be um, subject to this kind of disinformation. So one of the things I do see happening in Cuba through publications uh, like Juventud Técnica, which is an online uh, publication for young people, uh, you see them having a fact, new fact checker um, option. You see a very important, uh, you know, calling out disinformation. So that um, I think they're, you know, trying to head this off before any any such thing happens. Of course, there's, uh, on the other hand, uh, pandemic fatigue, especially I think among young people. And of course, there is there are difficulties in Cuba. Uh, people standing in line for things. Uh, you know, much more so than they had to before. There are shortages. All of this is complicated once again, uh, unfortunately, by our own country's sanctions and, and the refusal to date of the administration to uh, lift any of these sanctions, which even have delayed uh, development phases of the different uh, medications and vaccines. So so this is of great concern. And I think that it's very important uh, for Cuba to be able to once again uh, get things in motion, open up the schools, open up the economy, uh, like everywhere else. But in Cuba, perhaps the, the need is even more urgent at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, the I think you make a really interesting point about the misinformation. It's something we saw during the election, the U.S. election, where there was such a focus on kind of misinformation and disinformation campaigns in South Florida. And a lot of that, because of family relationships and geographic proximity, made its way to Cuba. And I assume there's some of that material around the vaccine and conspiracy theories that are um, going from Cuban Americans in South Florida to their family on the island. You mentioned a thousand cases per day now, uh, 10 deaths, and a, and a sharp increase over the last few months after Cuba went through really the first nine months where there was days where they didn't have a single case or they had single digits and there was weeks without deaths. Was that uptick? Is that new strands and also the, the opening um, to travelers from abroad at the end of last year? I think that you have in Cuba what you see in much of the rest of the world, which is a kind of perfect storm. Uh, there was an opening uh, in December, early January, around the holidays, uh, and that was the flashpoint, I think, that allowed some of these new strains to begin uh, to, and, and many of them are more highly transmissible, uh, to really propagate. And so I think that this is the root of it. In addition, you do have some pandemic fatigue and people perhaps not being as careful as they were before, especially among young people. And that's also where you see, you begin to see an uptick in pediatric cases in Cuba, which of course is the responsibility of parents, um, but young parents. So I think we see a kind of perfect storm. Uh, if you look at Havana today, for example, uh, of the critical and serious cases uh, in Havana, over 87% are uh, the South African strain, uh, which was not the case a few months ago. Uh, these stra this strain and some of the others 
they're not only more transmissible, but people get much sicker, much faster, which means that your clinical management, your therapies don't even have much uh, chance to work. And so that means you have to get people into hospitals sooner. You have to move them. You, it, it's a whole change in the way you have to respond. And, and it's not entirely clear that uh, anywhere in the world has been particularly adept at doing such a fast uh, response to, to this new situation. So I, I think you have a kind of perfect storm. And I think this is also one of the things that, um, and perhaps the most important thing, that has led the uh, Cuban public health authorities to begin what they've called a public health intervention in order to begin to use their vaccines uh, in a more, uh, in a broader way among risk, risk groups and uh, especially healthcare workers and some of the older people with comorbidities. Mm -hmm. And I, that's a great segue. Uh, so Cuba has, I understand, five vaccines and you mentioned four in clinical trials. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the general overview of where Cuba is with the vaccine situation? Sure. Um, I think the most important for our purposes are the two vaccines that are in phase three clinical trials, which uh, if you look at clinical trials, there's a phase one, a phase two, and a phase three. By the time you get to phase three, uh, you are fairly certain that your vaccine is safe. Otherwise, it doesn't move into phase three. And also, you're fairly certain that you have uh, elicited an immune response, what they, what they call high immunogenicity. So there are two uh, Cuban vaccines in phase three. One is called Soberana II that was developed by the Finley Vaccine Institute, and the other is called Abdallah, which was developed by the um, Genetic Engineering uh, and Biotechnology Center. These are in phase three trials, which means you have to have a large number of uh, people. In terms of Soberana II, uh, the phase three trial has involved about 44,000 people and Abdallah has involved about 48,000 people, uh, both in Havana and several other provinces. And Abdallah uh, is a three-shot uh, regimen and they just finished um, all three shots uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. And Soberana 2 is scheduled to finish at the end of May. They have, for that, they have a two-shot regimen and a three-shot regimen. And as required um, by the regulatory authority, both of these clinical trials, phase three, also uh, have a placebo group. In other words, a group that does not receive the actual vaccine. Uh, so this is where they are. It will take some time after the um, after the final shots are administered to evaluate um, the vaccines and see how effective they are. There's great um, promise, I think, for these vaccines because of their results in phase two. Uh, they're very encouraging. Um, they've been talking uh, somewhere between 75 and 85 percent, but of course this needs to be validated in uh, the larger studies. Mm -hmm. And what does timing for that look like? You mentioned that these phase three clinical trials are just ended or are about to end. What is turnaround time to be expected to kind of get those results in to look at validity, um, the immune response on these? 
They expect to have the initial results that can be put forward to the um, to the National Regulatory Authority by June in order to begin the mass vaccination by July, uh, by late June or, or early July. And then, of course, just like with the other vaccines that we've seen, like Pfizer and Moderna and all of these, they will continue to evaluate over time because they have to see what point the immune response is the highest and, and how long it lasts and in how it's acting uh, to prevent not only uh, symptoms symptomatic disease, but also uh, if a person does get sick, uh, are they progressing or not toward more serious or severe forms of the disease? You know, all of these all of these variables need to be evaluated over time. I think there is great confidence in the safety of these vaccines, because unlike some of the other vaccines in the world where the technology is brand new, the Cubans are using classical biotechnology platforms that they have used for several of their other vaccines that have like a 30 or 40 year track record of being administered in the country. And of course, these have all already gone through the phase one and phase two trials in addition. So they're very um, confident and very encouraged by the results thus far. And so it seems between the 44,000 for Soberana dose, 48,000 more or less for Abdallah with the clinical trials, and then some of the emergency interventions for another, was it 150,000 for health workers? Um, you have a, a good start to some vaccinations, and then it seems the safety is not an issue because of the technology that they're using, the results from phase two. So it's just looking at the efficacy and the immune response. But assuming that goes well, and those results are coming in in the next couple of weeks, you know, Cuba will start to massively vaccinate the whole island next month or the following month. Is that right? That's correct. As a matter of fact, to date, uh, what we're looking at is a bit over 400,000 doses that have been applied during both the clinical trials and what they've called intervention studies, uh, primarily in health workers and some very high-risk people. About a week ago, they started what they call a public health intervention, which will vaccinate um, almost entirely uh, Havana, which is the epicenter uh, of the pandemic right now in Cuba. Uh, and they have decided to do so based on the results of the uh, vaccines thus far, which they've examined through a, a national expert commission and also the very tough epidemiological situation in Havana um, that continues to have what they would consider high levels of transmission. And so they decided to go ahead with this, but they will wait to vaccinate all of the country until the National Regulatory Authority provides uh, emergency use authorization, which they expect to come uh, late in June. Interesting. And in terms of this vaccine and potential for Cuba to export it uh, to help the rest of the developing world and potentially commercialize it for other markets, is there still expectations that that's something that could happen and maybe a, a, a timeline? I think the Cuban vaccines have uh, some very a very important contribution to make globally. Um, it's said that 
the world is short between one and two billion uh, doses of vaccines, and, and that gives you an idea of the magnitude of the problem. But if you add to that the fact, Colin, that up to now, um, nearly 85% of the shots have gone to people in wealthy countries, and only 0.3% have gone to those in low-income countries. Uh, so you're looking at an enormous um, disparity between the possibility of being vaccinated, which reflects actually the, the problems with the, uh, with the pandemic itself um, and the, the access to care and all of these other issues. Uh, but, but now we are looking at a grave uh, situation with vaccine disparity. And of course, uh, in this kind of situation, we are all in this together. And unless the world is vaccinated, this, this pandemic is not going away. So in that sense, uh, the more vaccines, the merrier. But in respect of the Cuban vaccine in particular, or vaccines, um, they have said that they will not only donate some vaccines to low-income countries, but they will also make their vaccines affordable for other developing countries and all who would wish to purchase them. So they are already, as we understand it, in negotiations with several uh, Latin American countries. Um, and of course, they've done a technology transfer to Iran. And I think we see Argentina, Jamaica, a number of other countries, Venezuela, uh, interested Mexico in the vaccines. And, uh, you know, the, the Cubans have a very, they punch above their weight when it comes to biotech. They are one of the big three in the developing world in terms of uh, biotechnology expertise and uh, track record. So I think the uh, developing world may be looking uh, to Cuba as one of the few places where they could actually afford to buy some vaccines. It's amazing. And that was a question I wanted to ask you. You know, aside from Cuba, are there other developing nations that have produced their own vaccine? Well, it depends on how you look at China. <laughs> of course, China has produced uh, its own vaccines up to now. There was a technology transfer uh, between Oxford and the AstraZeneca vaccine to India, but not developed in-country. Uh, it looks like Brazil may be about to start clinical trials, but Cuba was uh, really in the lead on this, way, way far ahead of any other developing country in terms of uh, looking to its own resources in biotech to formulate uh, new vaccines. And it's interesting, they are, they are using a very um, tried and true biotech platform, as I mentioned, and they're looking at um, the receptor binding domain of the virus as, as the target for their vaccines. And it seems to be quite a standard and quite a, an effective um, of use of their resources and their, their expertise. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I just know from my conversations with people in the United States when I've mentioned the vaccine, um, they just scratch their head and say, how did Cuba do that? And you know, you, you gave a really good explanation about public health and the public health system. But in terms of biotech, I mean, is this just years of investment and high level training and, and capacity of great scientists and doctors? or? How did Cuba get in a situation where they could be on the cutting edge of a COVID vaccine 
during the biggest public health crisis the world has had uh, in decades? Well, I think you have to give some kudos to the vision of the Cuban leadership way back in the 1970s and early 80s to invest in this. Um, I, I think the rest, speaking of scratching their heads, I think the rest of the developing world was certainly scratching its head when um, when Cuba began these investments early on. Um, now they have uh, BioCuba Pharma has over 30-some institutes and enterprises. Uh, in, under its umbrella. Um, it is a going concern. Um, the original investments in biotech have been uh, made back, and uh, until very recently at least, um, biotech was operating on its own, off of its own revenues, uh, without um, government investment. In other words, the tables had been turned, and it was providing revenues for government because it is a publicly held uh conglomerate. So so I think this is really the notion that looking forward, uh, what is going to be the future of a small country without uh, great natural resources? What do we have? They must have asked themselves. Well, they have people. They have highly educated, uh, trained people who can uh, certainly uh, be among the world's best. And, and you have to remember, perhaps one of the few ongoing concerns between the U.S. and Cuba that survived the Trump era is the, uh, are the clinical trials of the Cuban therapeutic vaccine for lung cancer uh, that are still going on in New York today in, in upstate New York. Uh, so, so this is not something that is discovered yesterday. Uh, Cuba's biotech capabilities. This is something that is well recognized, at least in the scientific community worldwide. Gail, we saw so much uh, excitement and newfound interest from different sectors in the U.S. that wanted to reach out and engage with their counterparts in Cuba following the opening uh, by the Obama administration. One of those uh, projects was with Roswell Park in New York and counterparts in Cuba on an important lung vaccine. And, you know, so we saw great movement and, and positive advancements uh, on many fronts, including health. One thing you mentioned before that I couldn't agree with more is that this is the worst possible time for these crushing U.S. sanctions to be placing more harm on the Cuban people. Uh, within the context of COVID, a struggling economy, and focused on health, are there specific things the Biden administration could do immediately? Of course, the, the embargo being lifted would help greatly. But within the executive branch, the president has certain executive authority to move quickly. And I'm wondering if there's certain things you have in mind that could help the Cuban people. Absolutely. Um, there are a number of things that I believe this administration not only could do, but should do immediately. Um, and one of them is to eliminate this uh, very onerous list of companies, of uh, hotels, of banks, of all kinds of Cuban enterprises with which um, not only U.S., but other, other companies around the world cannot have any kind of relationship or um, purchasing or trade or what have you uh, without uh, having the um, 
the U.S. Treasury Department on their tail. So I think that's one thing, because that has really also uh, limited family remittances to Cuba, which are not only limited by the cap that Trump put on them, but also by how to you how do you get the remittance to Cuba with this list with banks on it and so on and so forth. So I think that's a major thing to lift that would also make it possible for people from the U.S. once things open up with flights to visit Cuba, stay in hotels, which they can't do now under Trump, uh, since Trump, and begin to revive the Cuban economy. I also think that the embassy and the consulate need to be staffed again so that we can begin to have a, a real exchange of scientists, physicians, experts, and so on. Uh, this is not going to be our last pandemic, and there are also a host of other things in the arena, in the health arena, uh, including cancer, that we really need collaboration on and that we must have collaboration on. Climate change, uh, the climate crisis. There's a whole series of issues that, that require more and more collaboration. So I think those are the two things, uh, in addition to to once again uh, limiting the reach of the Helms-Burton uh, Act so that we don't uh, begin to totally discourage any other countries for an investment in Cuba, and making sure that we can go forward on the two memorandum of understanding that were signed in the area of health, in the arena of health, during the Obama administration in order to you know, reinvigorate the particulars of those agreements and, and push forward. I agree with you wholeheartedly on everything. Are you confident that this can happen? Maybe you can talk a little bit about positive patches over the years. Obviously, with Cuba, everything gets so complicated and it's so political and it's so black and white. But one would hope that health, which is saving lives and providing treatment, could be one of the areas that's depoliticized and prioritized for engagement. And maybe that can happen. And maybe, you, maybe you're more optimistic than I am about the current scenario. I don't know whether to be optimistic or pessimistic. Um, unfortunately, I often believe that Cuba is simply uh, in the eyes of successive administrations, perhaps with the one exception of Obama and then much earlier Carter, uh, Cuba is seen as simply collateral damage uh, from our electoral process and, and the way Florida goes. I always have the fear that Cuba will once again not be really part of U.S. foreign policy, but um, relegated to the dregs of U.S. domestic electoral politics and that this has been the problem for many, many years. So what do I expect from the Biden administration? My frank answer is I really do not know. Uh, they made a promise in the Democratic uh, platform to uh, go back to the Obama era opening, but later statements have indicated that they're not ready to do that, that not only is Cuba not a priority, but um, they are certainly not going to be guided by the Obama administration's opening. So I really don't know what to expect. In terms of health itself, uh, we have been very encouraged uh, by the scientific community, by the uh, public health, the medical community, uh, continuing its interest in collaboration with Cuba. And most recently, uh, our journal has been 
co-sponsoring a series of webinars and online forums with universities, medical schools, public health schools, nursing schools, uh, health subsystems, and there's been great interest in pushing this forward. Um, we all need to learn from each other if we really care about health, if we really believe that health and health care should be fundamental rights. We need to uh, look at each other's experiences and see how we can better do this. I you know, it's, it's an old refrain, but I always feel that if we had put all of the um, investment into uh, cures for cancer that have gone into armaments over the past years, that have gone into war and conflict, uh, we would have beat cancer a long time ago. And, and I think this goes for the Cuba policy, too. If we had spent uh, all the money that we have spent on the uh, embargo, the blockade, the sanctions, whatever you want to call them, and spent them instead, our mutual environmental concerns, our mutual health concerns, I think we would be far and away in a better position in both countries. Well, let's hope that, uh, let's hope this vaccine proves um, to be effective and, you know, first and foremost for the Cubans who developed it and to vaccinate uh, their population and hopefully get the economy going and, and stop the spike in COVID uh, and also for all the uh, developing nations throughout the world and particularly in Latin America who will benefit uh, from Cuba generously sharing whether it's licensing it or sending doses. And maybe that can be a spark plug uh, for this administration to try and do the right thing with Cuba. No, I think, ironically, Colin, uh, for all of uh, our um, scientific prowess in the United States, it may be once again Cuba that comes to the aid of the developing countries, and not out of any vaccine diplomacy, but simply because it's the right thing to do. It'll be surely be interesting. We'll see. We should know in the, in the coming months. But I really, I really appreciate it. Uh, Gail, I think it's been enlightening uh, in terms of the COVID situation and certainly with the vaccine and really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise. I'm happy to, Colin. Good luck. Let's cross our fingers and uh, hope everyone gets to get vaccinated. That was Gail Reed, Executive Director of Medic Review. That's it for today. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening in Cuba, you can find us on Cuba Pod. Thanks for listening.